Right, well, yeah. Uh, welcome to this week's episode of Taking Stock. Uh, we're going to be discussing the birth of the Federal Reserve. Um, it's kind of, in my eyes, it's kind of the precursor to a lot of centralised entities in finance and all of the issues that come with them. Um, so this is kind of uh, almost like a part one. Uh, and we'll hopefully carry this on in future weeks uh, with... Um, then the creation of the DTC and all of the mess that that involves. But um, before we dive in, uh, Charles, do you, do you have any project updates this week? Well, the biggest one I want to mention is the, uh, as always, the DRS database that you know, YDRS is going to be hosting has just been getting some incredible attention, especially over this last week where the investor relations page has now, and I can't believe this number is correct, 48.4% uh, complete and audited correct data. So we're we're just so close to being halfway through. Uh, and remember, this is you know practically 11,000 publicly traded companies that we're going to have their emails, their phone numbers, uh, a citation for that data, um, an address if you want to be mailing, uh, stuff to the corporate secretary directly. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of different options, you know, for motivated investors to communicate directly with the companies they care about and uh, seek more direct information from them, which is uh, just so terrific because this information is scattered in the winds of the internet. So I'm excited to have it in one place under one roof, freely accessible. And again, 48.4%. And that I, I uh, just want to shout out that is uh, thanks to just a couple of really motivated individuals that have uh, approached us through the public discord server that we have volunteered their time and their energy. And uh, it's, it's thanks to that dedication that we're seeing such incredible movement uh, on the, on this front. So uh, it's actually updating in real time right now. Someone must be auditing data as we speak. It's a 48.41% <laughs> as I'm looking at it. So how great is that? Yeah, it's amazing that absolutely anyone can jump in and, and help out with this. And they do, um, like, even though we, we've been working on stuff like this for a couple of years now, it still blows my mind whenever I see someone else jumping in and, and getting their hands dirty with the data. Um, and I've just um, I've just shared in, in the um, Nest uh, our link tree with all the websites, the Discord in, um Discord link, our Lemmy link. Um, so uh, any which way you want to find us, you can find us through that link tree. All right. Awesome. So I guess just to kind of hop right into our main topic then, Bibic, unless did you have anything else you wanted to touch on? No, not from me. Uh, like I've just been so busy. Uh, like my mortgage has just gone up by 50%. Thank, thank you, inflation. Uh, so I've just been working, 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 um, and I'm really missing being able to do actually do something that feels productive, like all our work for DRS. Um, so I'm hoping to get back to it this week. Uh, there's still lots, lots of little things to do with the broker guides, as always. But um, yeah, hopefully going to have some good updates in the coming weeks. But and yeah. we'll be on Sunday and see anyone else. You know, certainly we're all listening in the future. I'm sure we'll still be having these. Uh, these hangouts on Sunday to do some group uh, volunteer work. So uh, come join us. The Discord server link is there on the link tree. Uh, so you'll be able to find yeah. us. I mean, case, once, once, um, 
it's just occurred to me like yeah once we've got all the investor relation emails sorted we're also going to be auditing which transfer agent every company uses and then between that information and the the broker information that i've been inputting we'll be able to have this custom broker guide set up on, on ydrs.org for any american company uh being able to drs from anywhere in the world or at least from the 140 plus brokers that we have in our database um but yeah um we got we got big yeah, eyes think... for, for this stuff and I, I love all the help we're getting from the community hope to get more uh if you're on ydrs or if you're on uh, any of our project sites you you know notice that there's a broker you're familiar with that we don't have listed we have a uh, submission forms already prepared and you'll be able to find all of that uh, on the website for sure yeah anyone can help out just yeah one of the beautiful things about this this online community um but yeah i've just put up in the nest and it'll be in the show notes too uh it's a link to an article on ydrs.org um, that Charlie's wrote a little while ago about the birth of the Federal Reserve um, and uh, the Panic of 1907, which I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, maybe that's a good starting point. <laughs> Definitely. So anyone who wants to follow along, that article that was put together for the site, you know, uh, six months ago, maybe something like that, um, is going to be the sort of the guiding light for the discussion today. But before we hop into it, I just wanted to touch briefly on, because uh, I don't in that article, the idea of a central bank. Uh, a lot of folks, I, I'm sure, have heard this term before, but just want to take a second. I've got the Wikipedia page pulled up here um, and just kind of speak broadly about how a central bank is an institution that is going to manage the currency and monetary policy of a country or you know, other sovereign state. And a lot of countries have central banks. Uh, the advantage for a nation to have one is that they're going to be able to, you know, if they've got a currency that they trade in, uh, that they're going to be operating within their borders, or if they're going to be trying to uh, organize international trade with, you want to have some control over the stability of that currency, of that unit of trade. And very often a central bank uh, they're going to be responsible for maintaining the stability of that currency. And the way they're going to do it is by, you know, uh, controlling the monetary policy, which could mean, you know, either issuing, uh, minting, printing, whatever word you want to use, but introducing new units of that currency into the market. Uh, or they could also have, you know, some regulatory ability to limit which uh, different other banks or other uh, trading entities are using that currency within their borders. And so there's multiple different ways that central banks can influence this kind of policy. And again, it's um, usually an effort by a nation when they implement one to uh, help control for, well, major inflation, major deflation, economic turbulence, you name it, they want to avoid it so that they can have a consistent, well, <laughs> have a consistent currency. Uh, something that's going to maintain its value and encourage investors to participate in that market. What we're going to be talking about today is the current central bank of the United States. Um, one thing that I'll mention kind of here at the top is that the current central bank, the Federal Reserve, uh, is not the only central bank that America has had in its history. In fact, there were uh, central banks uh, kind of early on, quite near the founding, 
And um, most recently, uh, a central bank was actually dismantled in 1832. So there was nearly a century of time you know, between then and 1907 where there was not any kind of central bank. So uh, that's an interesting you know, bit of tidbit of financial history. Um, initially, uh, there was a lot of interest in a central bank by America's founders. Uh, probably most prolific amongst their supporters was uh, um, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, who I guess has had a bit of a historical renaissance recently with the musicals, uh, but I don't think they mentioned his interest in a central bank in that uh, in that show. Uh, but <laughs> something something worth uh, checking out if you want to learn even more about the history. But for us today, we want to focus on the current uh, central bank of the United States. So the Federal Reserve—that's what they'll go get. What they go by here, and they. Um, I'll get into the conditions, the panic of 1907, the conditions that led to Congress initially uh, enacting and creating uh, the Federal Reserve uh, through their uh, mandate. But first, I just want to talk about that mandate, because that's sort of the regime under which we live today uh, in the economy that we, whether or not you are participating in it by buying assets, uh, holding them in a broker, holding them in your own name, you're still also participating in it if you've ever held a dollar bill or used it for goods and services, you are in some way uh, being impacted by the policies of the Federal Reserve. So I'd say, you know, it's it's quite relevant. And even if you're in another country, uh, it's quite likely that the Federal Reserve's policies still have had something to do uh, with what is going on in your country. And for more information on that, maybe check out our interview with Peruvian Bull from a few months ago. Um, so the three, uh, there's a three-stage mandate from Congress that the Federal Reserve was, has to follow. They are supposed to maximize employment. They're supposed to make sure to stabilize prices. And they want to make sure to keep long-term interest rates stable as well. And so those are three gigantic, broad goals that the Federal Reserve has. But that's what they're going to be trying to do. Uh, through their supervision over their uh, member banks, through research uh, on maintaining a close eye on uh, monetary policy uh, and how it impacts things like um, employment numbers or the stability of interest rates or how many loans are being taken out uh, by banks or by uh, bank clients, et cetera. So they're trying to keep a very close eye on that, maximizing employment on stable prices and on the, the interest rates as well. Uh, I won't get into too deep here about how their how their different tool sets are able to uh, impact these goals that they have that they're mandated to follow by Congress. But um, briefly, we'll kind of I'll just kind of explore a small example. So they're able to moderate uh, interest rates, and this is something that I'm sure folks listening are somewhat familiar with. Over the last couple of years. The Federal Reserve has been slowly hiking interest rates up after a long period, uh, you know, 15 years or so, uh, a little bit longer, of zero or close to zero interest rates. And what do you, what that means, uh, interest rates. So they are, the Federal Reserve is able to uh, universally dictate policy for uh, like domestic American banks where they're going to say, I mean, you can charge a higher interest rate, but you, we need you to operate at this minimum for the majority of the of the loans or offers that you're making to clients who are looking to borrow money, whether or not that's for 
um, buying a house, like I know Bibik, you mentioned your mortgage has adjusted recently, or if that's for seeking a business business expansion or other type of personal expense, uh, this higher interest rate is going to make it uh, more difficult for um, you know people that are seeking this kind of loan to get that kind of loan. Um, as far as how that impacts things like uh, prices, I mean, we'd end up getting quite a deep into the monetary policy theory there, but I'll try to keep it. Um, I'll try to keep it brief by saying that, let's say prices are going up due to something like inflation. If you can make it so that someone is, uh, hard, it's harder for them to access new money uh, to make larger purchases. Less of those larger purchases will happen, which is going to lower the supply side, and so perhaps that's going to push prices down. Um, that's like maybe a nutshell of what is possible uh, and what they're hoping for, perhaps with this kind of policy. I'm going to set aside everything about the theory and all that. And I suppose really I should just get into this panic of 1907. Um, And forgive me for that (laughs) brief (laughs) overview. I just wanted to make sure to try to connect the tools they have with the mandates they're given. Um. What do you think, Vivek? Any thoughts about that, or should we hop into the main players uh, from a, a century ago? Yeah, I think that's that pretty much covers because it is so broad, like their mandate and uh, their policy. So it's uh, it would be good to yeah, kind of get into the why uh, or why that came to be. Um, because it's not like they were just like yeah, you know what we should do? We should just get all all this stuff under one roof, like. Something something happened that they were like, oh, shit, let's do something about this. Um, <laughs> That's and that tends to be the case. Like we, We've witnessed similar things recently with um, global pandemics accelerating certain things um, like in, in all sorts of directions. We've had kind of more democracy in terms of uh, choosing where we work, but then also less democracy. Like in, in England, they actually used... Uh, the lockdowns to re- um, reduce uh, our ability to protest uh, because it was dangerous. But obviously now it's um, not so pandemic-y, but those restrictions are still in place. Um, so just a, just a more recent modern example of how things like that can come about. But yeah, what, what happened all, all the way back in 1907? Well, absolutely. So we'll get right into that, you know, um... For again, for anyone who wants to kind of follow along or even read ahead, uh, there there is a link to an article with the same information in the nest slash show notes. So let's hop right in there. Uh, let's first just uh, name and uh, briefly to talk about some of the main kind of players uh, at this moment in history. There was F. Augustus Hines, who was uh, had made his fortune with copper. He was from Butte, Montana, and he was even called uh, kind of like one of the copper kings of the time. And so he was an owner at the United Copper Company, and he was a multifaceted individual who also was president of the Mercantile National Bank. So he was a you know, multi. He had multi, many uh, his hands in many soups, as it was. A friend of his now was Charles W. Morse who was a member for the Consolidated Stock Exchange of New York. Now, that was a New York Stock Exchange competitor at that time, uh, not around anymore. And they were a large part owner of Mercantile National Bank as well. So he had 
uh, kind of cornered the market on ice at that time, made his fortune there. And so these were a couple of ruthless businessmen uh, operating on both the banks and markets. Um, so they, we also had uh, Otto and Arthur Hines. These are brothers of Augustus. So they're part of the same family who ran a brokerage firm. And as we'll find out, attempted to orchestrate a short squeeze uh, against um, you know, within the market. And then we're also going to be reading about Charles Barney, who was president of the Knickerbocker Trust Company, and he would often finance uh, Charles Morse. So they were kind of buddies as well. Uh, if you check out the um, you know one image that I really like, kind of this is from an era, remember, from long before book entry, electronic certificates. This is from an era where stock certificates were the norm, and that meant direct ownership was the norm as well. So we have a picture in the article there of a stock certificate from that time um, for the United Copper Company. Just an interesting piece of, uh, what would you call it at this point, art, history? I'm not sure. <laughs> but a lot of companies, so you can't get these guys anymore. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing a much deeper episode on share certificates in the coming weeks. Yeah, it looks very interesting compared to what we get today. Like there's just a huge dense chunk of writing in the middle where normally it's just one name of, of whoever owns the stock uh, these days. But this it's just, I mean, it's hard to read in all this cursive handwriting. Um, but do you know what, what all that writing in the middle of the certificate is about? Is it how many shares you own? I, I wish that I did. You know, honestly, I'm not, I'm not really sure. It is hard to read. That's a great question. <laughs> One that oh, we'll I can have... see. Yeah, I can see the person's name at the top. It's uh, this certifies that something something Phillips, uh, and it's uh, oh, it's a jumbo certificate. It's one hundred shares by the looks of it, preferred stock. That's right. Uh, yeah. So it, it looks to me like uh, I'm just kind of trying to read it here. Uh, so this is we're going off script, but um, looks like the. The holder of sort of the preferred stock certificate is going to be, you know, they're qualified to receive. I think I think it talks about dividends here. Looks like they have the ability to trade um, in the event of liquidation or dissolution of the uh, named company. Looks like they they have some uh, some rights to uh, some portion of any found assets as well. That's the third paragraph, but boy, I mean, people wrote like this all the time. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. It's like, they've got the whole terms and conditions of the trade written down on the certificate itself. I guess it was so long ago that they, they had to stipulate this on each certificate rather than it being the norm across. You wouldn't, I don't even know if they had an SEC or anything like that back then. To help no, the SEC off the top of my head, I think was founded in 19, 19- 23 or 33, um, I think it was. Uh, 1933. Um, oh, sorry, 1934. <laughs> so, yeah, this is before that. It's before there was any kind of centralized depository. Whatever it is that these certificates said, and could, should have been able to expect ownership, but as we'll find throughout this uh, discussion, 
and history lesson on the Panic of 1907. Unfortunately, things did not always work so cleanly. Um, so now Augustus Hines, as we've mentioned, was a wealthy copper magnate who had made the fortune off those copper mines. And he wanted to be, you know, from that, a major financial player. So he had a company office on 42 Broadway, which was right next to Wall Street, and ended up opening um, that uh, Mercantile National Bank in New York in order to enter into the banking business. Because although he had made a fortune, he had that perception that banking was the way to turn that fortune into a much more vast fortune. And um, he met together with Charles Morse that I'd mentioned, the ice king who made his fortune in ice. And over a period of, of years, they developed into serving on the boards of six national banks, 10 state banks, five trust companies, and four insurance companies. So they were together, were able to become really prolific in the space and um, had drawn a lot of influence through, well, their, their, I guess they had a, just a passion for fiscal policy, it seems. And so right across the way, uh, F. Augustus Hines had those two brothers, Otto and Arthur, and they had ran, they ran a brokerage form right across uh, the corridor. Uh, there on the street. So Otto had devised a plan to try to corner the market for United Copper, and that's Augustus's company that he drew his initial fortune through. Uh, he believed that his family together uh, owned and controlled the majority of the company, and he thought that that would be enough to squeeze shorts. Um, you know, If they had the majority of stake, of course, then short sellers would have no choice but to buy their shares at high prices to close out or risk liquidation. That's a a familiar story, I'm sure, to many listeners that we have. And so the Heinz brothers together teamed up with Charles Morse in an effort to create the pool of money to try to make that possible, where they would uh, you know, buy up additional shares in the market to lay into their uh, already believed majority stake in order to uh, squeeze you know, perceived shorts on the copper company. So they met with Charles Barney, an attempt to fund the maneuver. And so Barney, remember, this is uh, someone who was friendly with Charles Morris and had funded a lot of his similar financial schemes. Um, now, it, it's, it looked, however, that Barney could not cover the full cost that they estimated that they would need, um, but they decided to just go ahead and advance anyways. Uh, they were going to buy everything they could. They'd secured as much financing as they could, and uh, they thought that would be enough to start the squeeze anyway, uh, even though it uh, wasn't like um, mathematically certain. So on October 14th, 1907, United Copper opened at uh, $39.07. Attempted short squeeze, yeah. It flooded the market with shares of United Copper and shortly afterwards crumbled the share price from the $60 high. It closed at $38, which I guess back then was uh, a much bigger price tag. Um, and it had absolutely no bids in that day. The next day it opened at 36 and closed at 10. So that's uh, from $60 to $10 in two days is pretty crazy. But I think we've all seen similar things in the past couple or two, three, year, two, three years ourselves. Um, so at this point, Otto is uh, bankrupt, uh, same as his brokerage firm, uh, Gross and Kleberg. Um, 
the uh, United Coppers Bank, the State Savings Bank of Montana, also became insolvent in the process. They had used shares of United Copper as collateral in the lending and was a uh, correspondent bank for the Mercantile National Bank. Um, I have a feeling Charles covered this already, but I'm just going to carry on. <laughs> it's, all these names are so crazy. I never know where where we were um oh, i see chives has rejoined as a listener i'm going to invite him up to speak um so they had enough enough capital to handle a few days worth of withdrawals from the, the bank but uh runs also began at banks operated by charles w morse at the same time uh the panic was not yet widespread however and was contained to banks and trust runs by run by Heinz or morse uh, both were banned from banking by the New York Clearinghouse, which was a collective of New York City's banks, similar to, I guess, clearinghouses we have to, uh, today. Um, and then, yeah, a week later, regional stock exchanges across, across the country began limiting or closing trading, uh, which, again, is something I think we've uh, that is familiar to many of us uh, from the last few years. Um so you could say we had a repeat of this 1907 panic in 2021 uh, as uh, all these brokerages across America and the world um, were forced by their clearing firms to limit or um, trading to, to only closing positions, um, which is a very, very much tells you which side of the trade they were on. But anyway, um yeah, due to the association with a failed squeeze attempt, the National Bank of Commerce announced they would no longer serve as a clearinghouse for the Knickerbocker Trust Company, which is what, what a name, the Knickerbocker Trust. Like, we we have a pudding in England called the Knickerbocker Glory, and I have no idea where it came from, but maybe maybe this is the guy. Um, it's someone in his family invented a, a dessert that just uh, got very popular here. Um but yeah, after that, Charles T. Barney, the the guy who uh, was the president of, of Knickerbocker Trust, um, he was unsuc- unsuccessful in uh, attempting to procure funding from J.P. Morgan, uh, who was a prominent member of the National Bank of Commerce. Um, so yeah, by um, the 22nd of October 1907, depositors rushed to pull their funds from the failed bank. In three hours, $8 million was withdrawn, which I can't imagine. I, I need to see that on an inflation calculator. How much is that in today's money? Because that, for 1907, uh, that's insane. Um, but, uh, Chives, are you back in? Are you able to uh, chat now? Are you things working <laughs> uh, i think so yeah sorry about that twitter kind of crashed on my phone unfortunately um while you were talking i I did just pull up the u.s bureau of labor inflation calculator for fun oh, yeah. it only goes back to 1913 yes that, that's but, what i'm saying but 8 million in 1913 would be 251 million today yeah. which is wild so that's definitely a, a quarter, a quarter of a billion dollars being withdrawn from a bank in one day. That's uh, yeah, that's probably more than they have in the in the vault. Might qualify as a panic, certainly. <laughs> and 
So while that panic is kind of setting in and people are realizing what's happening all the more, uh, JP Morgan you know, is actually out of town at this time. And um, as because was kind of mentioned, and as many people probably know from the name alone, JP Morgan was New York's wealthiest, most well-connected financier. And he had even you know been stepped in in the past to help out even at the level of the U.S. Treasury uh, during the late 18, uh, 1800s. So he flew right back to New York and, uh, well, not flew, I suppose. He horse and carriage quickly back to New York and promptly began examining Knickerbocker's books. And his associates and him deemed Knickerbocker to be insolvent, abstained from providing any kind of aid uh, at that time. So even that, so he had got that phone call at first. He's like, no, I'm not going to help. Uh, then the panic sets in. He finds out they're truly insolvent and uh, probably feeling pretty good about his decision not to help. Um, that being said, though, the, as will happen a lot of the time, this panic spread beyond the banks that w- were having solvency issues, the trusts that were having solvency issues, and even healthy ones were starting to uh, field a lot of withdrawal requests or, or withdrawals from their clients. And so JP Morgan had to step in and try to start rescuing the system while the chaos was ongoing. He had confirmed with multiple bank presidents, with the secretary of the treasury to deposit money into multitude of New York banks. So he, John D. Rockefeller even deposited 10 million into national city banks. So if 8 million is 251 today, 251 million today, 10 million is probably be, you know, what is that? 275 million or so in that range. Um, and that's an, an, an effort to raise confidence, to ease the panic. And it ultimately gave National City Bank the deepest reserves out of any bank. Um, Rockefeller, in an effort to stop the panic, would even publicly pledge half of his wealth to maintain U.S. credit. And Rockefeller, again, that's a name I'm sure everyone knows as just a massive financier and economic uh, success story, I guess we'll call it, from that era in history. Even so, despite this public display, despite the cash infusions, uh, the New York banks were reluctant to make short-term loans needed to facilitate daily stock trades. And the interest rates on loans to brokers rose to an astounding 70%. Uh, Brokers had found themselves unable to procure the funding that they needed. Stock prices would fall to lows unseen since December of 1900. And the panic had truly set in and spread to all sectors of the market at that time. At 1.30 p.m. on the 24th October, the NYSE president went to JP Morgan and to inform him that the exchange would have to close early. Uh, this is something that they'd not had to do before, and Morgan believed that if they did, then that's going to just cause the panic to amplify and have people lose all the more confidence in the ability for the markets to bounce back. So he ultimately, J.P. Morgan, tried to call a meeting with all of the New York City Bank presidents and said that you know, as many as 50 individual stock exchange houses would fail unless they managed to raise $25 million in 10 minutes. Uh, so a couple things I want to pause on there. Number one, it's an absurd amount of money, right? $25 million in 10 minutes. We're talking, you're approaching a billion dollars in today's money that needs to be used to prop up the market on extremely short notice. And... Think about that, 50 different stock exchange houses. Imagine a world where we had 50 exchanges. Right now, we've got New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Uh, what 
what uh, market capitulation do they have? Uh, this is a this was a much different era of, I guess, well, you know, competition in this sector. So it's a, a different world on a bunch of different levels. So of those presidents, you know, uh, with that aside, those presidents managed to pledge twenty three point six million, uh, reached the market in less than fifteen minutes from that moment. And uh, 19 million of that was lent out before the end of the day, but it was uh, enough to survive the day. Now, the next day was still uh, a trading day. The markets are continuing to exhibit a lot of volatility. And once again, JP Morgan is trying to get more money. This time, they only pledged 9.7 million. I say only. Still a ton, of course. Um, To keep the New York Stock Exchange from closing, uh, they decided this money wouldn't be used for any kind of margin sale. Uh, the daily volume was two-thirds of the previous day, but once again, the, man- the market managed to keep open until closing. And the bank presidents were aware that you know it, there was no way to know when this was going to completely slow down and stabilize, and they couldn't reasonably continue in uh, infusing this level of money into the system. Uh, the Treasury itself was having trouble. And if the public could stop panicking, then the chaos would end. So there were two committees formed at this time. One to convince clergy to calm their congregations on Sunday. And one to talk to the press and explain a pending financial rescue package. So this is kind of a dual uh, a dual strike to try to soothe the public, um, both uh, you know, in terms of their rational minds and you know, the, for the, the, the churchgoers of the day, try to explain to them that the panic could be over for the following week. Uh, the Secretary of Treasury also agreed to return to Washington. He hoped that it would be a signal to Wall Street that the panic was over if he left the area. And so lastly, before the market opened on Monday, the New York Clearinghouse issued $100 million in loan certificates for banks to trade between each other. Uh, this influx in cash, combined with the actions of the two committees, uh, seems to do the trick, and a sense of order returned to the Wall Street that Monday. So basically, by helping to control the narrative around the panic and uh, the influx of a ton of liquidity in terms of uh, private banking funds and uh, in loan certificates that were printed up for this purpose, they were able to quell the the panic. And so certainly the walkaway message was, if these panics can't do happen, they're costly, they're difficult to control, and they risk greater catastrophe. So a question kind of arose in these financiers, financiers of the day, what could be done to limit the conditions which would create such a problem and avoid it for the future, hopefully? And that leads us into the, the section which is, um, so this is the context, the set, stage setting for why we have the Federal Reserve of today. And we're just going to be uh, talking now about the meeting at Jekyll Island. Um, Some key folks to... Well, actually, I guess before we hop into the key people, uh, Bibik, what do you... What did, any takeaway thoughts about... The um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things like jumped out. I mean, the, the amount that JP Morgan was involved is quite interesting. Like... You kind of think of them as just this big modern bank, but clearly they've been around for such a long time. It's such a massive institution. I'm I'm almost surprised we're not seeing Goldman Sachs as well. Um, 
but the fact that yeah there was 50 stock exchange houses i guess they were more regional um but still spread out spread out across america um which i think back then when you're dealing with paper certificates that makes sense when you have uh, you don't want to have all of that centralized because that's going to get messy really quickly uh and you need a lot of people managing that much paper um so this kind of distributed system makes sense uh but then they were like oh no we need to simplify this and and it, obviously it wasn't good for competition um and it wasn't good for uh necessarily i, I guess jobs um because they they tried to bring all under one roof um and it's clearly to protect themselves from their risky bets which yeah i guess it just um has always been the way um like what we experience these days with uh hedge funds and over leveraging it's it's just always been the case with uh when it comes to greedy people in these positions of financial power uh and they just want more and more and more um like i wish there was a slightly different tune to it and it wasn't so uh i don't know what's the, the word but like you know the the fact that they need a secret meeting at a place called the jekyll island club it just sounds so foreboding <laughs> like these are not <laughs> these are not the good guys but uh they're, they're the ones deciding fiscal policy um well yeah, there, there's yeah, I think definitely there was an effort probably for the framing or you know, I mean, at the end of the day, right, these panics are not helpful for common people either if the banks are operating in an over-leveraged way. I mean, it's unfortunate, but the tale as old as time would be that, you know, your common person, you know, if there's a bank run, yeah, sure, a lot of them manage to get their money out um, by definition of the run, but the bank is only going to be in danger if they are operating in an over-leveraged way, if they've lent out more than they um, you know, more than they should have or more than was safe for the economic environment. And then you've got people, you know, sure, the bank goes down and, and then all the regular people too that uh, trusted, you know, that institution. So I suppose, you know, there are altruistic arguments, right, for uh, instigating these kind of safety measures. Well, well, we may never know what the uh, what the main motivating factors were uh, for these for these folks, but uh, we we can only know what what had happened, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me. They 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 made a big old mess, and they were like, "All right, we need to protect ourselves from this happening again." Never mind the people that were desperately trying to get their money back from us. Ignore them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's my interpretation anyway. I hear it. I hear it. I'm right there with you. <laughs> uh, so as far as um, this Jekyll, Jekyll Island meeting, you know, there's a couple of key people that I want to mention first, although uh, there were uh, quite a few more at this meeting. And there was uh, Senator Nelson Aldrich, who you know was at the time chairman of the National Monetary Commission. Uh, this was kind of like the precursor, perhaps, to something like the SEC would be later on. And he'd been studying the European banking systems for almost two years at that time. Uh, in Europe at that time, central banks were fairly common. And uh, as a reminder, at this time in America, there had not been one in about 80 years. Um, he ultimately drafted what was called the Outreach Plan that we'll talk more about shortly, which was implemented into the Federal Reserve Act. 
And then there was also Paul Warburg, who was the key architect of the Federal Reserve. Uh, he'd been an ongoing advocate for banking reform prior to this panic, which put him in a prime position to for I told you so's. And uh, was probably, you know, his perspectives played a large role in the, the shape the legislation would take. Paul was a German-born banker who had been born into the Warburg family, uh, who was a prominent banking dynasty uh, with origins back in Venice. And from 1891, when he entered into his family firm, M.M. Um, Warburg & Co., which is still functional today uh, after its founding in, 19, in 1798, so long-standing banking family, uh, he ultimately would marry in 1895, and uh, found Cohn, Loeb, and Co. in New York City. So in 1902, he took up residence in New York, became a partner at the, at the firm he was working at, and would grow, continue to grow in the banking space until he was the director of Wells Fargo. So, And that's another you know, banking name that we, of course, still know today. Now, Warburg was a big believer in centralized banking and was very passionate about advocating that view. Uh, and shortly after moving to New York, he drafted his critique of the decentralized banking system that was currently ongoing in America. And inevitably, uh, he didn't end up publishing it uh, due to being self-conscious of his rusty English, according to um, some later biographical work. Uh, he let that critique sit for four years um, before he was finally persuaded to publish it by a Columbia University professor, which he had... Um, befriended. So it was published, this gigantic critique of decentralized banking in 1906, right before uh, this major panic event. And then so then after the panic, people started to realize that he was a educated voice, um, familiar with the centralized banking models that were popular in Europe, and paid him more attention. Uh, he would publish two other articles that are uh, linked if people want to read them uh, there in the article. A plan for a modified central bank and a United Reserve Bank of the United States. So, very effective titles there, we'd say. We see where his head is at. And um, so, meanwhile, you know, as he's developing this following, uh, Senator Nelson Aldrich helped to spearhead the uh, Aldrich Vreeland Act, which had the goal of studying the banking laws in the United States and those of European countries. And they wanted to try to see how the decentralized model versus the centralized model would affect things like stability, international trade, and um, just the local monetary policy. And they were stunned to find, according to you know that the outcome of that commission, that the local currencies were more stable and that they were more advantaged when it came to international trade. And so they became convinced through this study that central banking systems of Europe were something worth emulating uh, in the United States. And so at that time, uh, when they returned, uh, Aldrich would uh, call a meeting of the nation's leading financiers at the Jekyll Island Club in Georgia. And so this, this is something that was referred to as the richest, the most exclusive, the most inaccessible club in the world. Uh, and by major financiers, we're talking folks like J.P. Morgan and uh, and like uh, Rockefeller, as we mentioned earlier. But then also um, you know, 
also Paul Warburg, who, although he was not part of this extremely rich inner echelon, although quite wealthy and accomplished in the banking space, uh, he was invited because of his um, developing ideas about centralized banking and about their kind of placement in the zeitgeist, how he just had these essays come out right before a major event that uh, nearly caused a countrywide market crash. Uh, so on the night of November 22nd, 1910, Aldrich and these influential bankers and Warburg uh, all get together on a train leaving from New Jersey. Uh, incredibly, they had dropped their surnames in favor of first names or code names, and they got together under the alibi of a group duck hunt. So there was a lot of desire for secrecy around this meeting. Um I, I mean, that's something we, we hear quite frequently now is um, there are lots of holiday destinations uh, located near airports around the world, which are great for hunting. And it seems to be places where people who track these jets, these jets land at similar times. And it seems like these people meet up or we see people sat in booths together at like uh, major sports events. And uh, it just feels very similar um, in that sense where it's... Uh, kind of hush hush but also like yeah let's get all the richest guys together and that you can have your chats and figure your stuff out um yeah and I, there's one thing i wanted to mention that this group uh this is written in the article that on ydrs um this group that all met up on jekyll island they um together compromised about 25 percent of the world's total wealth at the time so like now we've got the one percent but back then it was the 25%. That's that's kind of crazy to think about. And that's who's uh, decided how all this fiscal policy would be, would start rolling, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to shut up now. I, I've got some questions about Paul Wahlberg for the end. I'm curious about him. But uh, yeah, I'll let you go. Character for sure. Well, we're, we're close to the end now because... Uh, unfortunately, the exact details of the meeting, the discussion, are still unknown for the most part. Uh, but we did have, you know, uh, journalism was certainly alive and well at that time. And, you know, another name we still know today, uh, the founder of Forbes magazine, Bertie Charles Forbes, uh, had written about this uh, this Jekyll Island meeting. Uh, and I have the, um, there's a cited article uh, the, as well that we've got in the YDRS page uh, from him. So I'll just kind of read this uh, quote from the article here. A picture a party of the nation's greatest bankers stealing out of New York on a private railroad car under cover of darkness, stealthy riding hundreds of miles south, embarking on a mysterious launch, sneaking onto an island deserted by all but servants, living there a full week under such rigid secrecy that the names of not one of them was once mentioned, lest the servants learn the identity and disclose to the world this strangest, most secret expedition in the history of American finance. I am not romancing. I am giving to the world for the first time the real story of how the famous Aldrich's currency report, the foundation of our new currency system, was written. The utmost secrecy was enjoined upon all. The public must not glean a hint of what was to be done. Senator Aldrich notified each one to go quietly into a private car of which the railroad had received orders to draw up onto an unfrequented platform, and off the party set. New York's ubiquitous reporters had been foiled. 
Nelson uh, had confided to Henry, Frank, Paul, and Piat that he was to keep them locked up at Jekyll Island, out of the rest of the world, and Nellie evolved and compiled a scientific currency system for the United States, the real birth of the present Federal Reserve System, the plan done on Jekyll Island, in the conference with Paul, Frank, and Henry. Warburg is the link that binds the Aldrich system and the present system together. He, more than any one man, has made the system possible as a working reality. Uh, so that is from the founder of Forbes magazine, um, you know, quite some time ago, doing his best effort to uh, shine some light onto this meeting, which apparently had undergone some some great secrecy in order to uh, to keep these details hidden. Now, of course, it's not exactly the um, it's not exactly a primary cited source, but it, it's the best that we have at this time for knowing about the Jekyll Island meeting. And probably the most that we'll, we may ever know about the uh, birth of the Federal Reserve on that night. But what we know afterwards, uh, that it, it would seem at that meeting, the Aldrich plan was drafted, um, which was then incorporated with along with the Owen Glass bill uh, into the Federal Reserve Act, uh, which was um, signed into law on December 23rd, 1913, which then created the Federal Reserve System, which we have today. And included in that bill were those mandates that I mentioned at the top. Um, and the Federal Reserve has been operating under those mandates now for 110 years. So an, an incredible history of uh, of just a, a few men, it would seem, in the right place at the, the right time to be inspired by the stability offered by a centralized model and uh, you know, with the right uh, greed <laughs> influencing a, a panic event, you know, we're able to to catapult that momentum into implementing it. And um, I don't cer- certainly don't see any discussion in our political discourse about going back the other way. Yeah, it's clearly um, so, uh, like back then we were saying earlier it's kind of the wild west um in terms of investing and banking and all of that especially in america um they weren't built on such yeah massive banking dynasties that that warburg came from um and they would it looks like they were figuring out a lot of it as they they were going like a decentralized system back then without the technology that we have today with with something like a blockchain to help kind of bring it all together uh, and make it auditable is yeah so risky um so it, it i can see where there's a lot of um like genuine wants for for in, like embetterment of the banking system um especially from from Paul Wahlberg coming over from Germany uh and like the three um main things of the federal reserve that we stated earlier i'm trying to remember uh maximizing employment stabilizing prices and moderating long-term interest rates like that is that sounds like a very sustainable uh model for for anything um but uh yeah i i almost wonder what paul Wahlberg would think of the federal reserve today and, and the way it's used um and if it's actually representing those three things or not, um, because it's funny they can they can use those three things as a kind of crowbar crowbar to kind of wrangle it into whatever position they need it to be in. 
um, much like a lot of the loopholes and stuff that, that hedge funds and all the other big players use, market makers and things like that. Um, and yeah, the 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 twenty five uh, percent of the total world's wealth gathering together and being like, right, we'll we'll figure out how to manage money uh, after being uh, some of them being responsible for the, like the biggest panic of the past, I don't know, century probably uh, money wise, uh, at least before then, and and then what was it twenty. 25-ish years later, you get the Great Depression. Um, so <laughs> it yes, makes yes. you wonder how how well it all worked out. But, um, yeah, and I, I mean, to go back to a decentralized system now seems so much more possible than it would have been back then, um, especially with the technology now. So, I, yeah, it makes you wonder... Um, do you need a Federal Reserve in a, in a decentralized uh, blockchain system? Um, but I'm not the guy to answer that. I'm the guy to ask those questions and ponder about them and kind of my eyes get glazed while someone answers it in depth for me. Um, <laughs> but it's the best place uh, to always be learning, I think. Um, but yeah, what a story. Okay, I can just almost smell the cigar smoke that would have been covering that whole Jekyll Island like a fog. <laughs> oh yeah. And you know, there, there, how many bottles of uh, whiskey and bourbon did they go through? <laughs> For sure. At least the ones that the, uh, the servants shared with them. I'm sure they kept some for themselves. I uh, hope so. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Uh, yeah what a story um i don't know if um anyone in it who's been listening in has any questions about any of this stuff it's uh it's a pretty big topic um and this is a pretty niche part of it the the kind of origin story uh the almost film noir-esque origin story um like, yeah, not like they had the foil set up for the reporters. They followed them to a, a platform, and then it was it was a set up, <laughs> and they ditched even the Forbes reporters. It's uh, it's got everything. I mean, you could almost make this into a movie, uh, and God knows, rich people love making movies about rich people. Like we've got plenty of that going on these days. But. I wonder if there, yeah, I don't think there's ever been a movie about this. Makes me wonder, though. That's something to try to find. I feel like you'd have a hard time getting it funded today. It's not as if, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone wants there to be curiosity about where the Federal Reserve <laughs> came from. Yeah. Because I guess if you're, yeah, you're telling the story of these guys coming and saving the American economy, but they're kind of saving it from themselves. So it's <laughs> it's a slightly flawed uh superhero origin story but maybe more of an anti-hero story or maybe even a villain story i guess they've they've lived long enough to become the villain at least uh batman style two-faced style um but yeah um i'm trying to think of anything else i can ask it's uh but I'm, i'm just yeah, American history is not my forte, <laughs> nor is English history, really. Um, but yeah, 
Yeah, certainly. I, I wish that we knew more about, you know, the exact people that attended, the exact items that were discussed. But there and, and there can be, you, you know, if you, if you hop on Google listeners, uh, there's definitely some other there's theories out there about uh, who was there and, um, you know, some rationale for that. I didn't include much of that in this in this talk just because it's very difficult to have any kind of sourced information. But one thing everyone can agree on is that, you know, that that Aldrich was there, that Warburg was there, and that this conversation was crucial in drafting the legislation that ultimately became the Federal Reserve Act. So that's the stuff that people are on the same page about. Yeah, it's wild. It has to be pieced together from that, even. Um, what's it? Uh, Dinkus Hunk has asked to come up and speak, so m maybe you've got a question. Um, oh, yeah, come you on can up. ask it now. What's up? Yeah, hey, uh, sorry, I'm in my car, uh, but I did want to just thank you guys for putting this on. Um, this honestly is a super interesting topic. I think you guys covered it great. Um, I wish more people would join, you know, discussions like this because uh, I think it's a super important part of history. And it's almost like you guys had mentioned, like something that seemingly want, like, like they want it to be swept under the rug to an extent. Right. It's like there isn't a lot of traceable history back to this event. Um, so I think it's important to kind of try and keep that that piece of the history alive. But um, I'm glad you guys recorded it. I definitely will go back to it again. But I just wanted to uh, give you guys props. Oh, thank you. We appreciate yeah, it. Man. Always happy to take props wherever we can get them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, there's so much secrecy throughout the everything that's been written up in the article here. Um, like, it's, it's uh, yeah, like another level of paranoia. Uh, you, you don't even see this level of uh, secrecy held for like military level stuff even in the movies where they, they take that shit to the next level, just, just for this, uh, the heightened reality of it all. Like this guy was, you know, streets ahead <laughs> in terms of like, yeah, this kind of spycraft stuff. Uh, totally. And did you guys, uh, I'm assuming you did, uh, given a lot of this history, but did you guys ever read a uh, creature from Jekyll Island, uh, G Edward Griffin? Yes, I have checked that out. Um, that is a, and for those who are unaware listening, you know, that is a fantastic book that goes into some detail about the different, those exact theories around the Jekyll Island meeting and uh, just some more information there that, you know, some, the person located threads and pulled on every single one. So if, if that's something that interests you, trying to get a complete view about this event, I highly recommend. I came, I came to this community in general for, in this community, I mean, by just stocks and investing. Came to it for gains, stayed for my interest in history and the Federal Reserve, and that book was definitely a big part of it. There's some speculation in there, but there has to be when, you know, a lot of the history is so so predated, like predating modern tech that we don't really have a, you know, distinct record of things. So um, I thought you guys touched, uh, touched well on just, you know, potential how – we could shift to a decentralized, uh, you know, uh, economy at this point in history. Now that we have the technology to back it, um, you know, I think <laughs> I come at it a lot of times, almost wanting to demonize the Federal Reserve, but it's better to give a perspective when we don't know what it was like back <laughs> back in that time when you know when they established central banking. Um, so I thought it was interesting to kind of look at it from that lens as well. But um, 
but yeah, no, I uh, definitely think we're at a point where things need to change from the system we're currently in, and uh, uh, definitely could see decentralized finance being being the key to the kingdom there. Yeah, I mean, now in the age of the internet, this kind of information and like digitized stocks and everything, uh, we don't have these settlement issues. We don't, or we shouldn't. And uh, yeah, a decentralized blockchain or, or distributed ledger system, like it's so achievable now, but it seems like everyone's scared to make the leap. So, uh, I mean, I think we're seeing it in small steps rather than big leaps, but I think we'll get there. I, I think... Um, the fact that um, uh, the SEC in their um, bulletin about holding your stocks and different ways of holding them, they, they've they included a whole section about uh, blockchain assets, uh, kind of warning about centralized exchanges that aren't regulated and all this kind of stuff. But really, that's that's a little step right there. They're, they're talking about blockchain as a serious asset. So I can definitely see it coming. Um I mean, we'll see if it gets adopted through finance or through gaming or through collector's stuff. Um, I can see it happening with comic books and music as well, just as easily, because uh, they're just, just the same in terms of, like, people love collecting that stuff. They love appreciating it. They love uh, using it. Like, um, And, yeah, it, it would just make so much sense to do that for stocks uh, because it's just so much easier to audit. But, um, yeah, like back then, so wouldn't have been possible. It's, it's partly why the DTC was invented as well, because they were like, shit, how do we manage all of this? We, we've got stacks and stacks of paper and like people are losing them now. Like it was uh, just getting out of hand. So it, it made sense at the time, but we the, the technology has kept moving. But, uh, yeah, the, the institutions haven't. They're very happy where they're where they are. And. The, the reasons are becoming more obvious now. Um, so, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll get there. But, um, yeah, appreciate you, you coming on and, and adding a bit more spice to the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, Dingus. And, and thanks for the shout-out to uh, Creature Checker Island as well. Um, it strikes me that I, I might add a link to um, see if I can find the publisher's webpage add a link for further reading at the tail end of this article for folks that are curious um, and a bit more speculative take. And uh, one other thing I just want to mention kind of on the, on your note there, Bibic about the DTC, you know, we're definitely going to do a future episode on the circumstances that led for the DTC to be founded in 1973. Um, Spoiler alert, you know, there was some incredible paperwork uh, backlog on the market in the late 60s, which was causing a major problem and uh, and led to the formation of the Centralized Securities Depository. So that's going to be a great future episode, too, for folks that enjoyed this one. Yeah. Instead of cigar smoke, I'm going to be sm- uh, imagining just regular cigarette smoke, just thick, thick amounts of it and brown wallpaper. Um. But yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, it's it's going to get uh, yeah real interesting with the DTC. Um, but I think yeah, that's been uh, another great episode. We've we've covered another big topic. Um, and uh, in the show notes, as always, we've got 
the link to the article that's got loads of uh, citations in it and as Charles said he'll get the link to the uh, Creature from Jekyll Island book in there um, and uh, yeah there's the link tree with uh, the websites ydrs.org, drsgme.org for all your DRS info needs um, as well as links to our Lemmy and our Discord if you want to get in touch um, and then there's also the we have emails for either website if you just have any questions at all, you can email us there, get us on the Discord or Lemmy, or DM us here on Twitter, or, or just tweet at us, whatever. Um, like, yeah, we're, we're here to help. So uh, hopefully we'll see you around, and uh, we'll be back next week for, uh, for another episode of Taking Stock. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of the week. Be